From Wisconsin Sea Grant, I'm Bonnie, and this is The Water We Swim In, stories about the Great Lakes and the people working towards equity. Wisconsin Sea Grant is based at UW-Madison, which occupies the traditional land of the Ho-Chunk people. The stories on this podcast span the area we now know as Wisconsin, where the lands and waters are cared for by the 12 Native nations that call Wisconsin home. Today, we're talking about red pine forests, blueberries, treaty rights, and how they all converge around fire on a tiny spit of land jutting out into Lake Superior. I saw, you know, somebody check a watch and there was like this little dip in the conversation and I could tell this like, all right, why are we here other than to eat food? I'm in a conference room with about 40 other people eating lunch. The room looks out onto Lake Superior. Evan Larson has just gotten up to address the group. Some of the most important teachers in my life among the many elders that I've connected with are trees and tree rings. The stories that are recorded in the rings of trees help understand the history of the land. Evan raises his hand up high, holding a flat cross section of a log. And so this is a fire-scarred piece of red pine that was collected on Minnesota Point. And so within the rings of this tree, the innermost ring is 1781. The outermost ring is 1931. And it recorded fires, uh, 1788, 1804, 1826, 1829, and 1842. And so this is an absolute record of when fires were burning across Minnesota Point. So I feel kind of rude standing up here because I like to be down, but (laughs) I don't want to have my back to people, too, while I speak just a little bit. That was Melanie Montano, who stood up to join Evan Larson. So we're trying from all sorts of directions to try to bring back the voice of fire. Just talking about the importance of cultural fire and what that is for the Anishinaabeg people and bringing it back. So the land, since it hasn't seen fire, it's literally been waiting. And so here we are again, but we knew that we had to start it off in a good way with ceremony before we can start doing all these other things. Because if we didn't, then we wouldn't be doing things in the right way from the Anishinaabe way of life. Because we need to be able to let the land and the spirits all out there know what we're doing. Also ask for permission and explain like our good intentions. And so again, now that we did that. Right before this lunch, our group had gathered in a pine forest on Wisconsin Point. A very long, sandy, secluded strip of land with water on both sides. At our gathering, we had Native and non-Native people, professional firefighters and researchers, and others who are lending their knowledge and expertise to this project in some way. I was invited as a communicator for Wisconsin Sea Grant. Out under the pines, Evan and a firefighter built a small fire, and the group of 40 or 50 of us stood in a circle. The ceremony started, The ceremony included prayer, songs, and stories, most of which was in the Anishinaabe language. The translation of the project name, Nimawanji Idamin Diwatashkadeng, what that translates to in English is, we are all gathering around the fire. I think the beauty of that title is that, yeah, it's because we have all these great collaborators and we're gathering around Ishkode fire. And we have all of these beings, all of these different plants and animals, and they are also gathered around the fire, very much so in the way that they live and 
and how they've evolved to be. It is Ishkode, fire at that center, that is enabling all of these things to happen. Super, super grateful that I'm able to be a part of it because it's a long time coming since fire has been suppressed for our people and we've been put in jail because of it. But it's up to us to carry on this responsibility. And I don't know if we have to chain ourselves to railroad tracks or what, but whatever it's gonna take to give fire a voice and respect again, we're basically here for that. Melanie, Evan, and a host of others will be working on this project for the next few years ahead. This opening ceremony marked the first step in the project. There is really only one good way forward, and that is to collaboratively restore cultural fire to these places. Melanie Montano, I'm a member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe and of the Eagle Clan. When I was growing up, I used to spend a lot of time with elders. And I can speak to Red Cliff mostly because that's where I spent a lot of time with elders, where they would talk about the use of fire in our area to burn for blueberries. When our community out here in Red Cliff would use fire, they would go to places like Stockton Island or the Muckwood Barrens or Raspberry Campgrounds in Red Cliff, and they would go in little neighborhoods. And so sometimes that would be like eight to 10 different families and each family had a lot of kids and they would all go out and set up camp to be able to burn and at another time of the year be able to pick blueberries and things. When they would go out and pick those berries, they were you know, spending extensive amounts of time together and they were doing ceremonies, they were feasting together. We had stories where elders talked about he wanted to play so bad, but he couldn't until you know he was able to pick so many blueberries. He remembered sitting on the ground and looking across like the blueberry plants and they were so thick that all he could see was blue and he became like really overwhelmed about all those blueberries to pick. Blueberries are one of our first foods. When I say one of the first foods, you think about things like deer and rabbit and strawberries and blueberries. You know, all those ones that are native to our region that we heavily relied on as part of our diet. And we often have them as part of our feast and our dishes at different ceremonies and things like that. And not only that, but when we do our traditional services for our people when they pass away, we talk about how their spirits, once they pass, their spirits actually travel for four days and four nights. And each night they stop and make a fire for themselves. And each day they pick a different type of fruit and they eat that in one of those days, one of those fruits that they actually pick and eat is blueberries. And then in addition to that, the social component and of course the cultural component, they were doing it to be able to make money because they were selling a lot of blueberries to businesses in our local area here in Bayfield and they actually would be loaded onto a train known as the blueberry line. And so I think about like, how many blueberries that we must have had in our area to have an entire train line that was dedicated to just carrying blueberries back down to Chicago. And so I think that in order to have such an extensive amount of blueberries, you obviously had to have fire. One thing that our people talk about is that everything out there has a spirit. Fire has a spirit and there's actually a different name for the spirit of fire in Ojibwe just fire in general, we use Ishkode. 
It's one of the gifts that have been given to people and the animals and plants and trees and all of that. And we, throughout time, had been using fire as a management tool, obviously to be able to clear land and have the foods that we needed. And all those things unfortunately shifted throughout time as a result of government policy. A lot of our people that were out there picking those blueberries were basically brought under the logging industry then. And so that was an extreme shift from going to picking blueberries in a pine forest or a barrens and different places like that to all of a sudden being in the woods, cutting trees and peeling pulp. Fire suppression policies came along. We had stories where elders talked about memories of their parents and grandparents who were actually put in jail if they were caught using fire. It was like automatic 30 days in jail. A lot of our families were big then, and if the man of the household was out using fire to be able to make sure that we had enough blueberries for the families, and then all of a sudden he's arrested and put in jail for 30 days, then his family really goes hungry. But they also had to do what they had to do in order to survive and continue feeding their families. That was just another layer of things that were contributing to the historical trauma that we still carry today. Our generation, of course, carries a lot of fear about that fire. It, I guess, created its own trauma within me as well. For a while, for a time period, I actually had, I wouldn't say a hatred, but I guess a hard time in thinking about fire. Basically, my children's dad, Damon Ponick, had been doing wildland fire for many years. I would worry about him if he wasn't coming back safely and what that would mean. And our kids were young at the time, too, and just how devastating it would be to realize that I had lost him to a fire. Hopefully, our young ones will actually start building their relationships with fire in a positive light. And that's something with my own children. We've been real grateful that they've been able to be a part of, you know, burning the backyard and things when Damon would be doing things like that. Their fear has even been lessened as a result of just being around and exposed to it and realizing that it actually can be a beautiful thing and watching all the new growth that comes up afterwards and being able to gather those berries and things too. Geji Bidag and Dago, Minwa Damon Ponick, Indigenous. So Geji Bidag is my known name and Damon Ponick is what they call me. <laughs> as the Wildland Fire Program Manager for the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, I definitely fear fire, big time. I don't have this imbalanced fear of fire. (laughs) I have a pretty balanced fear of fire right now. But this imbalanced fear of fire, that perception has been influenced by, you know, ultimately like capitalism, really. The propaganda of the early 1900s with the Forest Service was all about saving timber for harvest, like Smokey the Bear, right? I don't know if you've seen some of the old school posters, but they're pretty solid about like fire is a bad thing and you're going to kill all the baby bears. You know, you think of like Bambi running through the woods. Please be careful. Only you can prevent forest fires. Fires that happened in the early 1900s were devastating for sure. But the reason why they were so intense is because most of that was logging slash. You suppress fire for so long, it builds up fuels, you cut that down, you leave it on the ground, it dries out, and you know, 10 years later, you get the perfect 
alignment of wind and heat and relative humidity and you get a spark from a train, it's going to take off. We've just become so disconnected from it that we've forgotten how to like have a relationship with fire. I think everyone can connect to fire. We all have a relationship with fire. Our genetic transformation into the beings that we are today is a direct result of fire. That common thread that we all have where we can sit in front of like a campfire and just sit there and stare at it and watch it. I think that kind of genetic memory is there for all of us. When I started really reconnecting with fire and doing some of the work and helping Evan and the others, I couldn't help thinking about how by bringing back fire, we might actually be able to start helping to heal from that intergenerational and historical trauma. And in turn, I realized that I myself am receiving my own healing through it as well. The connections with all of us working on fire in this region have come together in so many different ways. It feels like we were all sort of in different places a few years back doing our own thing and something kind of brought us all together. And that's what helped us to realize that the time is now to actually be doing this work focused on fire. One of those people that Melanie met was Evan Larson. Hi, my name is Evan Larson. I'm a professor of environmental sciences and society at the University of Wisconsin in Platteville. I went to college with all the intentions in the world of becoming like a third grade teacher. And in between my junior and senior years, I came into an undergraduate research experience. And that was my introduction to the field of dendrochronology. So the science of using tree rings to reconstruct environmental history. My parents had a wood shop. And so I spent a lot of my early childhood with tools and smelling sawdust and using a chainsaw. And so this work brought together this background that I'd grown up in with what I've always had as a really deep interest and passion for the world that we live in. My graduate degrees are in geography. Ended up at the University of Minnesota for my PhD. I was doing research. And so my PhD advisor, Kirk Kipmuller, and I and others in the lab started taking these trips to the Boundary Waters every spring as a way to decompress. I grew up in Minnesota, went to the Boundary Waters my whole life. Always thought of it as a really beautiful and special place. So we went up and we started doing some research, collecting tree ring samples, looking at old trees, starting to think about long-term records of climate that can be reconstructed from tree rings. And I remember this very distinctly when all of a sudden it really sunk in that the work that we were doing, it was not just an academic question of what is wilderness, but it's just like, it was much bigger than that. You know, this first scouting trip, I remember that this big loop among all these islands and we were looking for fire scars. We stopped at an island and there were probably 20, 29 trees, I think, that had these very atypical scars on their trunks. It's kind of oblong shaped peel scars where the bark was removed by people and then it leaves that mark in the rings. And I had always just assumed it was modern campers that were hacking on trees with axes and things like that. And so we took a section of this scar on this trunk we just did a rough count of the rings on the outside of that scar, telling us how long ago that scar had been formed. And there were like 200 rings on the outside. And so all of a sudden we were like, oh, this was not, this was not Boy Scouts. You know, this scar is really telling a lot longer story. Lee Johnson, who's the uh, director of the Cultural Heritage Program at Superior National Forest, he said, I'm pretty sure this is a place where there's really good evidence of an Anishinaabe family 
who was living on this island and making canoes during the fur trade. And those kind of connections just happened over and over and over and over. Over the course of a number of years, as we're getting to spend more and more time in that landscape, we are starting to build the relationships that take time to build with folks at Fond du Lac, Boys Fort, Grand Portage, Lac La Croix. We connect with managers from the Quetico Provincial Park. That Western notion of that division between people and the land that has forever been a false concept with some really severe implications. By moving past that, we can actually work toward this really beautiful and rich and diverse future that is sustainable. Melanie and I met when we were getting ready to go up to Lac LaCroix First Nation Reserve. I was invited to travel along with them, partially because I had ties to the community, but also just have been taking more of an interest in that work. And that was actually the first time I had really hung out with Evan. It was one of these working relationships where it immediately felt like we'd probably been working together forever. While up there, we talked about future work that we might want to do as well. And there's been several people throughout time that have been interested in doing the same kind of approach with Wisconsin and Minnesota Point. Minnesota Point, for example, is heavily populated. It feels like, you know, the history that was there that holds how our people, meaning the Ojibwe, have been there and been using that area and thing is almost like erased from the high development. And then when it comes to Wisconsin Point, it's a lot more quiet. It feels more natural, but at the same time, it is a lot more intense as well. Not only have our people been there, but they're also buried there and their bones are still there. The presence of those graves there puts a whole nother feel into it. Just more about the trauma that had happened and, you know, the removal of our people from those lands. We reached out to all the different organizations in the area. We ended up being like extremely surprised that everybody was really on board and really excited about it. And it's work that they definitely want to see through. So we had been talking about this project for a couple of years. I don't even remember why I went to the website, but I landed at the Wisconsin Sea Grant. And it was a couple of weeks after the call had been posted and you know, the top priority, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Seeing the call come out from Sea Grant, it just crystallized. And then to share it out with Melanie and Robin and others and everybody to be like, yeah, this is it, let's go. I saw the title of the email in my inbox and that it was from Sea Grant and it said, you know, decision. I was sitting about 10 feet from where I am right now. And I got up and I just walked away. Had a cup of coffee, talked to my wife for a little bit, and then I went back and I opened it up and it's like, yep, it's funded. Woo! <laughs> it was thrilling. It feels so right in so many ways, and it's just so exciting to see this project happen. After the break. We have literally been like walking through the woods, like kicking stumps. <laughs> we walk through the woods and kick some stumps. Water research mysteries, teachers connecting kids with the Great Lake in their communities, 
erosion, and dangerous currents. These are just some of the stories offered by Wisconsin Sea Grant and the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. A monthly podcast series, Wisconsin Water News, highlights stories previously available only in print from these programs. Series narrator and science communicator Marie Zwickoff brings the stories alive by featuring in-person and phone interviews with the people behind the news. Listen and subscribe to Wisconsin Water News on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or at Sea grant.wisc.edu. Oh gosh, that's a big question. I had just asked Evan Larson how he describes the We All Gather Around the Fire project. If I had to bring it down into a succinct statement, I might open the conversation. Since it has to be short, as I'll say, like, let's go back to the last glacial maximum. <laughs> you know. For someone who studies changes to the landscape over time. I guess the last glacial maximum might seem like a good place to start for an abbreviated story of Wisconsin's forests. Evan says that at the last glacial maximum, which is roughly 20,000 years ago. If you're standing in northern Wisconsin, you know, you would have been under a mile of ice. The plants and animals that you'd see around you are nothing that you would recognize today. As that ice receded, you had all of these just massive migrations of plants and animals. Like, oh, the oak trees were down in Florida and they started going up this way and the spruce trees started following the Appalachians and the hemlock and the beach, they kind of did their own different thing, but now they're hanging out together. What that means is that when we're standing right now on this landscape, when we look around and we see the assemblage that we think of as a northern forest, we're actually standing in the only time that that specific assemblage has ever existed. And what that means is that that forest has literally never existed without people because people have been following that ice too. Literally in this landscape that we're in, people have always been a part of it. When we talk about forests, trees can live hundreds of years old. So since the arrival of Europeans to places like Shagawamakong, Neyashing, Minnesota Point, Wisconsin Point, literally we're talking a few generations of trees and that's it. Zagawamakong Neyashi. That's the name for the places we now call Minnesota and Wisconsin points. Zagawamakong roughly translates to sandbar place, and Neyashi means point. If you look at the scale of Lake Superior, Zagawamakong Neyashing, this tiny landform. But in that tiny place, it is somewhere that so many people are connected to, so many people love. It's got such an important place among the Anishinaabeg and many people before them. It is familiar and close enough where if we can come together and do this work there, that is where the message can really start to ripple out. So my part coming at this from the perspective of a dendrochronologist is to help develop the tree ring story of Shagawamakong Neyashi. So right now I'm working with four students from... Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College. Do you see any The poison ivy? And so, yes, we have literally been like walking through the woods, like kicking stones. All right, so this one was not on our list, but yet I'm really... Hey, Marie. Hi, glad to be here. I jumped on the phone with Marie Zwickoff, Senior Science Communicator for Wisconsin Sea Grant. Because last fall, Marie joined Evan and his students on a sampling trip. I was excited to be able to make this, even though it was like a weekend So I met Evan at the Lake Superior Estuarium. That's kind of their home base. It's an interpretive center for the estuary run by the Lake Superior National Estuary and Research Reserve. 
Then the students arrived. Uh, there was Mocha, Valerie, Emily, and Ashla. And then we drove out to the very end of Wisconsin Point. It was in the fall, just uh, overcast, muted fall day. We stopped at the very end where the, the lighthouse is, and we got out at the parking lot and just walked into the woods. You know, there's no trail. I already got turned around a little bit. They had some trees uh-huh. in mind that they hadn't had a chance to sample yet. This was an easy stroll out along a path just to get kind of where we've been, but it's super overgrown and you can't really see the forest floor. You can still see the legacy of fire, like blueberries, red pine, and there's just a, a whole host of plants and medicines here that are associated with a place that has burned. But if you look at the lower layer, no red pine. All of these red pine, they'll cast seeds for the rest of their lives, but they will very likely never actually result in a baby pine tree. Because fire opens the forest floor, that mineral soil, and white pine seeds can get through a little bit of duff. Red pine seeds, when they fall on this, they just land on the needles and litter layer, and they cannot get to the mineral soil and germinate. Until there's a fire. Until there's a Until fire. Until we come through and burn it. Darn right. <laughs> yep. All so. right, so now we'll head off trail. I will go find a tree, a dead tree. So normally what we do is kind of spread out and it's the group of us just doing these wavy walking lines through the forest. So a lot of times these stumps, you know, you'll be five, 10 feet away from you before you all of a sudden realize like, oh, that's, that's a stump. And for all of the samples that we've taken, I'm sure that we've walked by probably many of that could be sampleable, but we either didn't see them or something like that. Come on. Oh. <laughs> that wasn't as far as I was expecting to go. One of the first ones we looked at was a downed tree that was just covered with moss. Yeah, it's totally solid. It's totally covered in moss and like a podium. Looks like a good one. In my past, I was a wildland firefighter and kind of just picked up what burn scars look like by osmosis. Usually fire scars are a blackened area at the base of a tree. A lot of times they're triangular shaped. They can be like a foot high up to three feet high or higher. There's no bark on the burned area. All right. Who wants to take Marie through the process? Well, we do a kick test. We go around, kick, make sure that the stump is solid because if it's solid, that indicates that there's been scarring and that the tree has produced resin to heal. What's your assessment? Pretty solid. Pretty solid. Because of that resin, the red pine are so abundant with. We're gonna open it up to make sure that our interpretation so far is accurate. Appropriate safety gears required. <laughs> These stumps have been, they're from trees that have been dead for a hundred years or more in some cases. And on that first draw of the saw and the wood chips fly and all of a sudden you just like, you can just smell the resin. Are you picking it up on it? There was a bald eagle kind of circling overhead and and calling out. And so we just kind of stopped and we listened to the eagle for a while.
There. Anybody want to interpret? Heel scar, right there. Oh. So then like the question that. is, how do you know? How do you know that because of the way it is? <laughs> you can see where people have like peeled the bark away and mm -hmm. the tree healed around then. And you can also see like there have been a couple of fires that have touched this tree in its life. And we feel like there's a pretty good chance that those were prescribed burns. Those uh -oh. were like the Anishinaabe. There's a lot of reasons that you might peel the bark off of a, of, of a tree. In some parts of the world, the inner bark was a common food source during starvation periods because there's starch in that. It might be incorporated into medicines for a variety of different reasons. And one of the very utilitarian purposes is that you can gather that resin and then that is one of the ingredients that goes into the gum that you would use to build and repair birch bark canoes. Oh. These trees have been living on this land, carrying this story and these relationships in their rings for all this time, but trees die too. And so these trees are now old. That story is long enough ago where these are the last vestiges of, of kind of that really, that, that tangible legacy. Is there a way that we could approximate the amount of fires that have happened using what we are able to gather from these tree stumps? So, yeah, there's a lot of statistics that you can use in fire history research. You can call the, the mean fire return interval, like how many years between fires. You can call the fire rotation, how long does it take to burn an area, the equivalent of our study area, things like that. I used to really care about the numbers, and it's been interesting because over this project, I've realized that the numbers are less and less important. But more important is the presence of those scars in that place. And that sometimes statistics kind of mask what the really important story is. Mm -hmm. So, all right, a uh, couple more cuts. Okay. Do we have the backpack? No. We'll One. take, I think we'll take two. Those are gorgeous samples. I had to head back home, so I left, but the students stayed out there for longer and collected more samples and brought them back to the estuarium. We've done a pretty well a systematic coverage of both points, and we've sampled pretty much every stump or log that had a fire scar. We brought them back to the superior estuarium to get them to dry out totally, and we glued them all down to plywood. We're gonna be working with the Duluth Makerspace and sand them and sand them and sand them and sand them. And this is, I love this part of the process because you start with these rough cuts and you're using belt sanders or orbitals, start at 40 grit, then 80 grit, 120, 180, 220, 320, 400. And a lot of these will take up to 600 grit, which is an incredibly fine polish. And you get to this moment where all of a sudden, what looked like a rough cut, the rings just start to pop out and it smells good because you're heating up the resin and then you start to see the shapes of the growth rings and these fire scars that have been laid down year after year after year. Once we get them polished to a high shine to the point where if we look at them under a microscope, you can see the individual wood cells. Then we'll take them to the laboratory and under microscopes, we'll first count the rings in each of the samples and mark the features like fire scars and peel scars. And then we go through a process called cross-dating. Cross-dating is looking at the width and the character of individual growth rings and finding these patterns that emerge over time. The width of that growth ring reflects rain and sun and temperature and storms and things like that. And if you look at enough, you can start to identify these 
consistent patterns that occur over, say, a broad region. And we're comparing patterns and characteristics in the tree ring record from those to the living trees where we know the rings, we know how they're anchored in time. And when you find a match, it's it's a really fun process because you're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And all of a sudden it's just like, click. And it is just like a fingerprint. And in that way, we can start to look at when these fires burned on the points, down to the year, and a lot of times even down to the season. You know, this was a fall burn, this was a spring burn based off of where that fire scar falls within individual growth rings. Now we've gotten some hints from preliminary work that the patterns on the points are gonna be exactly the same that we would expect that, you know, there'll be frequent fires occurring every 10 years or so throughout much of the record. And then with a shift of land use associated with the establishment of reservations, 1854 treaties, with allotments, with the Nelson Act in Minnesota that was intended to remove all off-reservation Ojibwe to the White Earth Reservation in the western part of the state. Kind of this whole series of events, everywhere we've worked, we see at that moment the decline in fire activity. My role in the project is basically to help bring together a holistic picture along with the work that Evan and our students in the field are doing. My approach is mostly with gathering the Indigenous knowledge, mostly working with Fond du Lac tribal members and community members, and then others in the region that specifically have knowledge in regards to fire. That's basically looking at who fire is as a being rather than what fire is. Who fire is will be told to us through all of the stories that we gather. I get really excited that I'm able to go out there and spend time with elders and knowledge holders to be able to hear their stories. Like that's something that I've always been excited about since I was young. I can't say enough about how good that feels to be able to sit with them and just be able to be gifted with hearing what they want to share at that time. And all of them have like so, so much to share and it's all so important. When we're approaching people to ask for knowledge, one of the biggest things we need to make sure is that we pass a SEMA or Kinnikinik, which is basically a tobacco, but for myself personally, I try to carry my own mixture, which is often made of blueberry leaves and bearberry and strawberry and a majority of those plants, especially bearberry and blueberry, we wouldn't have those plants to be able to put in our Kinnikinik if it wasn't for fire. And so fire is one of them that is able to help us carry on one of our main cultural practices, which is the passing of tobacco. In some ways it's talked about as a form of a spiritual contract because you're requesting information or knowledge from that person. You're asking them to share something that they carry that you know they consider sacred or important to them. But we also believe that a lot of times the spirits are working through those people. So in a sense, you're asking for that help from that individual, but you're also asking for the spirits that help them share what needs to be shared. And in turn, by accepting that asema, they agree to provide what they can and what they're willing to and comfortable with. And so far, we've had agreements to do some interviews, which are going to be starting next week. And those individuals, they've been extremely happy, realizing that they can help bring a positive light to fire again. And we'll be able to bring that together with the scientific knowledge that's gathered to 
really get a good understanding of what the fire history is on both Wisconsin and Minnesota Point, with the end goal basically being to return fire to those landscapes. After the break, I talked to the person who will likely be leading the team responsible for starting that first fire on Wisconsin and Minnesota Points. I think a lot of people that are in fire, it's kind of like a ancestral pull in a way where you feel really connected when you're doing it. So when I first got into fire, it felt so familiar, like the smells and the sounds and everything about it was just like, man, I've, I've been here before. I've like seen this before. I've felt this before. That's Damon Ponick, longtime wildland firefighter who's currently the wildland fire program manager at the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior, Chippewa. I wanted to talk to Damon because he already knows the feeling of returning fire to his ancestral lands, and he would likely be the person to oversee that first fire on Wisconsin or Minnesota Point. Definitely the excitement of doing fire. That was my initial draw, probably. I seek out those kind of chaotic moments, and fire provides a lot of that because you're kind of always having to stay on your toes with your surroundings and things like that. Over time, my relationship with fire evolved. We started asking questions with our elders and asking about fire and seeing photos from a long time ago. And you can see like trees with fire scars in them. That's when my whole kind of world opened up with fire. And I realized more of how it was related to our identity and our culture and our way of life. For us in the Great Lakes region, fire on the landscape is normal for us. These past couple hundred years of suppression of fire and suppression of ignitions of fire is abnormal for this environment. One of the other big moments in my life was recognizing that in the Apostle Islands, we were surrounded by evidence of fire all the time. I started working with the National Park Service at Apostle Islands in spring of 2000. And I had been out to this island, Stockton Island, every summer for 15 years since I started doing island school out there where we'd bring a bunch of kids out there and do uh, natural and cultural programming. We had Kurt Kiffmuller out on the island to do some fire history. It started coming back that there was way more fire on this landscape than lightning could explain. And it just, you know, mind-blowing. Hearing from elders say that they went out there and picked berries and then they would set it on fire. And then now we've got the research that can literally show the fires that these elders are talking about. For all those years, I like would literally walk past these stumps and red pines and not really know much about how fire played a huge role in that landscape. Returning fire to Stockton Island was a collaboration between the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, other bands that are part of the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, and the National Park Service. And Damon was there every step of the way. In the lead up to burning on Stockton Island with the National Park Service, there was a lot of work to get people to understand that we can do this effectively, we can do it safely, we can do it efficiently. You know, a lot of people think that we're just a bunch of knuckle-dragging firefighters, but we actually have a lot of very complex equations that we run to predict fire behavior and what it's going to do in a certain fuel type. 
And so we do as much as we can to, to be as controlled about it as possible. So in 2017, we reintroduced fire to the landscape on Stockton Island. The traditional cultural fire frequency is about every four to six years if you're burning for blueberries. We basically missed 80 years of fire on that landscape, about 20 rotations of fire. So a lot of work went into prep. We had to go in and use chainsaws and brush saws and a whole bunch of other tools to create a control line. And then, you know, getting all the equipment out there, we basically had to like haul it out in a boat. The burn day was, was a really good day. The wind was perfect. The temperature was perfect. It's kind of like picking a really nice warm summer day with a little bit of a breeze. That's, that's the perfect day to burn. So if the wind is coming from the north, you start on the south end and you start burning there. We just kind of marched along with the fire. You can imagine like a, a line of fire just kind of marching slowly across the landscape. The fire dictated the pace. We would help it out a little bit every once in a while. You have people on the flanks bringing fire along the edge so that you can build depth on the edge. But essentially the fire basically finished the whole thing for us and stayed within the lines. And yeah, it went very well. One of the best burns ever <laughs> that I've been a part of anyway. What the Park Service decided to do was to take the traditional cultural practice of fire on the landscape and use that as a guide for how to manage that landscape. It recognizes that ancestral knowledge, the history of the human relationship to that space, you know, we don't need them to do that. We don't need them to recognize our ancestral traditional relationship with these landscapes because it's so powerful that we have it without question. When the Ojibwe, the Chippewa of Lake Superior and the Mississippi Bands sold the northern third of Wisconsin to the federal government, we made sure that we could still live here. So in 1842, when the chiefs signed that treaty, Article 2 of that treaty states that we have the right to hunt and then also other privileges of usual occupancy. So it's implied in other privileges of usual occupancy, not only the ability to extract resources, but also to manage for those resources so that we can extract them. So embedded in that is the right to burn as it is the right to hunt, as it is the right to fish, to gather, to go out there and watch the sunset, to go out there and pick berries, to go out there and pick medicines. We don't need them to recognize our ancestral traditional relationship with these landscapes, but because of the way things are right now, having them as an ally to meet mutual goals of land management in our ceded territory, in our ancestral homeland, that's a that's like a plus for them. <laughs> you know, it's like a good thing for them because they're finally waking up to integrating traditional knowledge and traditional cultural practices back into the landscapes that define them, right? The beautiful conditions that exist out there are the conditions that were managed by indigenous people with fire. Taking indigenous people off that landscape is just kind of backwards because you're taking away the reason why that place is beautiful. <laughs> So I think that's the biggest part with Minnesota Point and Wisconsin Point is making sure that the greater communities 
who share this space with us now recognize that these landscapes were maintained by tribal people with fire for as long as those landscapes have been there. And what they love about that space with just how beautiful it is, is a direct result of fire on the landscape. So we do have the authority to burn, but we also want to be good neighbors too. So what we're saying is that we're going to learn about this space together. We're going to come up with some plans for it. Fire could be one of those ways that we could get back management there. It could be other things too, but like we already know that fire needs to be on that landscape because fire is what has contributed to it being the way it is. We all kind of are imagining, you know, one day everybody on the hillside of Duluth is going to be able to look out their window and they'll see a plume of smoke coming up from Minnesota Point. And that plume of smoke is going to go up into the air and it's going to bend over the lake. And they're going to look down there and say, oh yeah, the tribe is just down there, you know, burning for blueberries. And they're going to be comfortable with that because we've informed them enough to say like, we can do this, we can do it safely, we can do it effectively, and we can make this space beautiful for all of us again. I imagine families going out there and grandmas and grandpas bringing their grandkids out there and picking berries and those grandparents remembering stories from when they were kids and telling those stories and singing songs or using the language. We're, we're creating like the perfect park again for our people to go and like just be present in the moment and like just just to be Anishinaabe. I can't wait for the day when we're actually returning fire to these areas and like how intense that's going to be and how meaningful it's going to be and like closing this gap that's been broken that's been forced to be broken by government policies and assimilation and things like that and just how healing that's going to feel for so many yeah I can't can't wait for that day and I think it's going to be an amazing time The Water We Swim In is produced by Bonnie Willison and Hallie Jama please subscribe rate and review and share this podcast with a friend you can find Wisconsin Sea Grant at seagrant.wisc.edu you can find the Wisconsin Water Resources Institute at wri.wisc.edu Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.